me to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John chapter 14, I'll be reading verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Please bow with me in prayer. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the peace that surpasses understanding. Father, please grant your people peace this day, and for those who don't know you, may they make peace with you and then experience your peace. Father, grant us your Holy Spirit help us, to lead us, to guide us, to convict us. Help me, Lord, to preach your word in a way that is worthy of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Sunday, January 24th, 1736. John and Charles Wesley were on a ship headed to America. When this ship encountered a very severe storm. On this same ship were Moravian missionaries. And these Moravian missionaries were were having a worship service in the midst of this storm. And John Wesley wrote this in his journal. In the midst of the psalm wherewith their service began, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Germans, or Moravians, calmly sung on. This event had a great impact on Wesley's life. Because Wesley realized that although he was a professing Christian, these Moravian missionaries had something that he did not have. His heart was troubled. He was, he was fearful. He was terrified when this ship was tossed in the storm. And these Moravians are peacefully singing. Well, we know that Wesley's problem was that he did not yet know Christ. And although he was headed to America as a missionary, it was not until years later that he actually became a Christian. Why did these Moravians have peace? Because they had the peace that only Christ provides. My question to you is this, in the storms of your life today, are you anxious, fearful, Terrified like Wesley and the the Englishman on that ship? Or are you calm and peaceful in the midst of life's storms like those Moravian missionaries? Again, they were peaceful. 
because they knew the peace that John is writing about in this text, quoting the words of Christ. John 14, 27. Once again, I'll read it. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Why did Christ say these things to his disciples? Why here? Why now? Well, they were going through a very dark time. Christ was laying some very heavy truth upon them, and he was going to lay some more heavy truth upon them. Let us look at a few things in particular that would cause the disciples to have troubled and fearful hearts. Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray him. John 13.33, Jesus tells them that in a little while he is leaving them and that where he is going they cannot come. John 13.38, Jesus tells Peter that the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. John 15.20, he tells them that if they, the world, persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 16.2, Jesus says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers service to God. Those words would terrify me. John 16.30, The disciples tell Christ, Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. They feel a little bit of confidence. And how does Christ respond? Verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. How is that for a shattering confidence? How tragic it must have been to hear these things and then see them actually come to pass. Can you imagine how Peter felt after denying Christ and then having the eyes of Christ pierce him, as it were? This is what happened in Luke 22. We see Peter denying Christ, and then right after he does this, Christ looked at him, made eye contact with him, And then Peter remembered what Christ told him, and he went away and wept bitterly. Can you imagine the guilt you would feel in that situation? How difficult it would be. And there are many other things that would cause troubled and fearful hearts in the disciples. They they were men with human emotions. The teacher who gave them instruction was leaving them. The man they loved dearly and who loved them was going to die. The man who who was perfectly just was going to die a disgraceful death on the cross. The man who performed miracles, causing the blind to see, the lame to walk, and the dead to rise would no longer be with them. Can you imagine that? I mean, if you were walking with Christ and he's raising the dead and and curing every disease, you, you would feel immortal. Nothing can touch me. But now this very man is going to die. The man who protected them is going to die. The very man who calmed the wind and waves when the disciples thought they were perishing. 
the man they knew to be the Son of God and the Messiah would be murdered. They were told persecution would come. Would they be crucified like their master? There were many things that caused fear and troubled hearts. But the intention of Christ in telling them all that he told them was to comfort them. John 16, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In spite of all of these things, Christ comforts them and says, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Dear friends, Christ offers these same words to each of you who belong to him this day. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. There are many things happening in the world today that is causing fear and anxiety. Some are terrified still of the possibility of COVID. Some are anxious over the freedoms we seem to be losing in our nation. Some are stressed and fearful over the possibility of food shortages and increased cost. Some are anxious over the loss of jobs and businesses. And others are troubled over the economic impact of the decisions made by our leaders. Some are anxious about gas prices. Some are troubled about wars. Some are concerned over recent elections. Some are anxious about secular worldviews and ideologies creeping into the church. And and it is okay to be concerned about these things to to a certain point. But but there's a difference between having a concern about something and being anxious and terrified and troubled over it. We're not to be nonchalant about these things. But we're not to be fearful. We're not to be given to anxiety. Not only these things, but each and every person here has things that you are working through personally that tempts you to be fearful and to be anxious and that robs you of your peace. Even as a local church, what are you dealing with? Every church has issues to deal with. Even the most healthy-looking church outwardly has issues to deal with, things that can rob of peace. Dear friends, no matter what your situation is today, large or small, no matter how difficult or terrifying things seem to be, listen to the words of our Lord. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The question is how? How do we not let our hearts be troubled or afraid in difficult situations in such a a dark world? How is this possible? Christ provides the answer. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Essentially, Christ is saying that he provides a peace. And this peace that Christ provides is different from the peace of the world. So there's a difference between Christian and worldly peace. Let us first seek to understand the the shortcomings of worldly peace. 
According to one dictionary, peace is freedom from disturbance. This is how the world defines peace. If nothing is disturbing me, I have peace. And how do we obtain this peace according to the world? Well, maybe you try to be around only positive people. Get rid of all the toxic people and situations in your life. But does that work? No. Because issues are unavoidable in a fallen world. There is no paradise today. Well, since I cannot escape issues, maybe I'll become a stoic and learn not to respond to things that happen. The the problem with this is it doesn't change how you feel internally. It doesn't give you an internal peace. It just controls how you respond to it. Maybe if I make enough money, get famous, buy all the things that I can buy, life will be great and I will be at peace. Dear friends, we know how that works. It doesn't deal with heart issues. It doesn't deal with a guilty conscience. So you have all of these rich and famous people, and what do they do? They turn to drugs and alcohol to numb the brain. Surely that will give me peace. But does it? You know the answer to that. And in many cases, the addiction to drugs and alcohol bring even more problems. So many, in a last-ditch effort to find peace, say, I've tried everything else there is. Just, there, there, there's just no peace in this life. But surely, if I take my life, I will find peace in the grave. It must be better than this. This is the greatest deception of all. So many cemeteries with stones that say rest in peace. And people are there suffering eternally. Dear friends, if they could see the result of taking their life, they they would think that this world was the most peaceful thing compared to the hell they are experiencing as a result. But what about those unbelievers who appear to have peace? You know, there are some who seem to be living a pretty good and happy life without Christ. They don't really seem to have a a guilty conscience, just seem like good people. Dear friends, this is the most dangerous position of all. And it is no true peace. It is a false peace. Killing or numbing your conscience does not bring peace. This has been attempted so many times. Darwin, in his theory of evolution, this is, he said he was attempting to kill God, as it were. He wanted to numb his conscience, remove the, the, the law of God from his conscience. Freud, the father of modern psychology, realized this. He realized that man, if he is going to have peace, he must deal with this internal conflict with his conscience. But of course, he would not say submit to God. 
He said what you do is you find someone in your past to blame all of your problems on. I had an uncle who was mean to me. I had a, a father who was mean to me growing up. And so that's the cause of all of my problems. And then Freud said, you must get rid of the law of God because it is a false standard. And you must remoralize yourself according to realistic standards. So in other words, if I want to commit adultery and that's my standard, that's okay. But that, does that ultimately give peace? No. Thomas Watson put it this way. The wicked may have something which looks like peace, but it is not. They may be fearless and stupid, but there's a great difference between a stupefied conscience and a pacified conscience. This is the devil's peace. He rocks men in the cradle of security. He cries, peace, peace, when men are on the precipice of hell. The seeming peace a sinner has is not from the knowledge of his happiness, but from the ignorance of his danger. MacArthur adds that the world's pseudo or false peace is the peace of ignorance. This type of false peace is what many false religions provide. You feel good about yourself because you, you knocked on enough doors while you're trying to earn salvation by doing so. And you have some kind of sense of peace because of it. This is, as Watson said, the devil's peace. <clears throat> Dear friends, this false sense of peace <clears throat> is not the peace that Christ gives. So let us look at the peace of Christ. Christ says, peace I leave with you. But he doesn't stop there. Note that wishing someone peace was a common Jewish greeting. It was simply a courteous way of greeting someone. You could wish someone peace, but it does not mean that they would actually find it. So, so in a sense, those are empty words if they don't actually provide peace. C consider the words of James when he is dealing with false faith. He says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Is that what Christ is doing? Is he, is he just saying, have peace, I leave it with you, but not actually providing it? Does he give us mere empty words of encouragement? No, he says, my peace I give to you. In other words, he provides the very peace he tells us to have. One commentary put it this way. It is a parting word, but of richest import. The customary peace of a parting friend sublimed and transfigured as the prince of peace. He brought it into flesh, carried it about in his own person, died to make it ours, left it as the heritage of his disciples upon earth, implants and maintains it by his spirit in their hearts. Many a legacy is left that is never given to the legatee. Many a gift destined that never reaches its proper object. But listen to this. But Christ is the executor of his own testament. The peace he lives, he leaves rather, he gives. Thus, 
all is secure. To understand this, we must understand peace biblically. Again, if you look in a dictionary today, it will say free from disturbance, but that falls so short of the Christian definition of peace. In the New Testament, the Greek word translated as peace as is irene. According to Thayer's Greek lexicon, this word can be translated as the tranquil state of his soul, assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. It's not about being free from disturbance. It's about an untouchable, immovable peace. And ultimately, we can classify peace into two categories. To quote MacArthur, there is both an objective peace and a subjective peace. Objective peace has to do with our standing before God. Subjective peace is the peace that we personally experience and feel in life. It is the tranquility that we personally feel. So let us first look at at objective peace. Naturally, you and I are not at peace with God. James 4.4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In our sins, we have no peace with God. But salvation can be described as making peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel is called what? The gospel of peace. True peace starts with salvation. Because we cannot have true internal peace until we are first at peace with God. That's objective peace. Having peace with God through Christ. And then, because we have peace with God, we can experience internal peace in our daily lives. The subjective peace that we feel and experience comes only from the reality of our peace with God. Because God is the ultimate source of peace. He is called the God of peace. Christ is called our peace. I love what Alexander McLaren says. No man can be at rest down to the very roots of his being in the absence of the consciousness that he is at peace with God. There may be tumult of gladness. There may be much of stormy brightness in the life, but there cannot be the calm still, impregnable, all-pervading, and central tranquility that our souls hunger for unless we know and feel that we are right with God and there is nothing between us and him. And that is because Jesus Christ dying on the cross has made it possible for you and me to feel this, that he is our peace, and that he can say, peace, I leave with you. Joseph Alain put it this way, The conscience cannot be truly pacified till soundly purified. Some of you want peace, but you don't want Christ. That would never happen. 
There's some of you sitting in here today and, and, and you have not submitted your life to Christ. You, you don't want to, but, but you, you know the conflict of living in your sins and you know you need to turn to Christ. But you are just hoping that one day you will have peace without submitting to Christ. Dear friends, it will not happen. And once again, if you somehow experience some kind of peace outside of Christ, remember what Watson said, it is the devil's peace. He's, he's rocking you in a cradle to sleep, pacifying you while you are on the very precipice of hell. Dear friends, that is not a peace you want. It is in light of Christ promising to provide this peace that he says... Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Matthew Henry said this comes in here as the conclusion of the whole matter. He had said in John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. And here he repeats it as that for which he had now given sufficient reason. Christ has given us sufficient reason. Not to let our hearts be troubled. Not to let our hearts be afraid. Because he gives us peace. Notice the word let. It's not there for no reason. Christ states this as though we have a choice. He indicates that that having fearful and troubled hearts is a choice that is made. Notice also that the situation does not determine whether we should have fearful or troubled hearts. The major context in which Christ is speaking here is in light of the persecution that is coming upon the disciples. And he's not saying, well, this is going to be pretty bad, so don't worry about having peace. No. In light of the fact that you are going to have this terrible persecution, I am providing peace even within that circumstance. We get into this mode as Christians where we think like the world. I have a bad circumstance right now. I don't need to have peace. This, me not having peace right now is an appropriate response. I need to be anxious. I can't help it. It's my disposition. Dear friends, Christ would not comfort us by telling us not to have troubled or fearful hearts unless he has made a way for us to do this. If he has not made it possible, then this is no comfort. But again, think of the context of this. Consider again the the definition of the New Testament word for peace. The tranquil state of a soul. Assured of its salvation through Christ. And because of this salvation in Christ, fearing nothing from God and content with this earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. That has nothing to do with your circumstance. Dear friends, it does not matter what happens to you. You have an untouchable peace. But what if I can't find this peace? 
What if I struggle greatly and most of the time I'm anxious and fretful instead of having peace? Is this a big deal? Dear friends, peace is important. Not only is peace a blessing for believers, but it is also a requirement. Peace is one of the distinguishing characteristics of a true believer. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and what else? Peace. This is the evidence of your salvation. Believers should be marked by peace. Again, this does not mean that we will always perfectly be at peace, but it should be our general disposition. Christians should not be known as people given to fear, worrying, and anxiety. Consider what our disposition does for a world starving for peace. What message do you send to unbelievers? As a Christian, when they see you worrying and fretful. But dear friends, think of the message you send to unbelievers when when your entire world comes crashing down and you still have peace in the midst of it. Unbelievers look at that and say, how on earth can you respond this way? Look what this person just did to you. How can you be at peace? And you say, because of Christ, it doesn't matter what happens to me. It doesn't matter what happens here. Think about the testimony of the martyrs throughout history going peacefully to death, standing there burning peacefully. They weren't afraid of death. When, when John Wesley was on that boat, he later on asked the Moravians, why, why were you not afraid? Why were your women and even your children not afraid? And the response was, we're not afraid to die. We have peace. We have peace in life. We have peace in death. Somebody wants to kill me? You can't threaten me with greater peace than I have right now. This should be our disposition. Peace is so essential that it is one of the defining characteristics of the kingdom of God. Romans 14, 16, and 17. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the, knowledge, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Dear friends, if we are required as Christians to have peace, and in every situation... Why do so many believers lack peace? And perhaps you can say, why am I lacking peace in my own life? And how do I cultivate it? Calvin wrote that we are not made of iron so as not to be shaken by temptations. We are human. Yes, we get shaken. But there are ways to obtain peace. There are ways to gain back our peace. So what are these helps that we have? How, how do we obtain peace when we lose it? How, how do we increase our, our peace in this life? I'll give you seven ways. 
Number one, remember that we have the helper, our comforter, the Holy Spirit. <coughs> if you read the, these chapters, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you see this great emphasis on the Holy Spirit coming and what he is going to do for believers. John 14, 15 and 16, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. John 14, 25, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. John 16, 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Dear friends, this should give us great comfort. Who is the Holy Spirit? Christ says, I'm sending you the, the paraclete. This comes from two Greek words, para, which means alongside of, and kaleo, which means to call. A paraclete is one who is called alongside of. In the ancient Greek culture, a paraclete was often an attorney, an advocate, one who came alongside of you in your troubles to, to advocate for you, to defend you. R.C. Sproul points out, as only R.C. Sproul can, that this word, comforter, as the, the old translations call the Holy Spirit. This is not just, you see, we, we, we think of the comforter as one who perhaps consoles us and pats us on the back after we've been brutalized in the battle, but this is not what the Comforter does. When the, the Greek words that were translated into English as Comforter, it was translated in a time where the word comfort was much more related to its Latin root. So we get the English word comfort from two Latin words, cum, which means with, and forte, which means strength. So essentially, the word comfort means one who comes with strength. You see, the Holy Spirit is not one who comes and comforts you after the battle. He is the one who comes with strength during the heat of the battle and protects you and leads you and, and, and provides for you and guides you and gives you conviction and, and upholds you and gives you strength. Dear friends, this ought to comfort us. See this in the life of Peter. Before the Holy Spirit comes, he, he's denying Christ before a servant girl who has no value, no influence in that society. But afterwards, he is as bold as a lion. That is the effect of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
I don't care what you're going through right now. It does not matter what you're going through right now. You have a comforter. You have one who is God who comes to you with strength. And that should give you peace. Dear friends, you are not alone. Even the battles that no one else knows about but you. He is there and he knows and he upholds you and he defends you and he fights for you and he gives you strength. And this provides peace. I don't care what I'm going through. I can have peace. I have a comforter with me. Number two, peace comes through faith and confidence in God. Dear friends, if you want peace, consider God's faithfulness. Let me ask you this. Has he ever broken a promise? Has he ever wronged anyone? Has he ever done evil? Consider his faithfulness to his people throughout history. Consider his faithfulness in your life again and again and again. I love the words of that hymn by Newton. He said, his love, God's love in times past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. Each sweet Ebenezer I have in review confirms his good pleasure to see me quite through. Oh, dear friends, does God's love manifest it to you in times past forbid you to think that he will leave you? It should. He hasn't done it yet. Why would he do it now? But, but each and every time that, that God brings you through something and shows you that he is your helper and your provider, it confirms his good pleasure to see you through every single time in the present and in the future. And dear friends, remember the sovereignty and goodness of God. We can have peace in every situation knowing that God is in perfect control. This is why theology matters. We say theology divides. Yes, it divides truth from error. How how many people have come to Christ in in, in trials and during tough times? And, And how many people have come to a reformed understanding of theology during difficult times because it makes sense when you have a a God who is in control and who is good and who loves us and cares for us. Dear friends, remember that Satan was not even allowed to tempt Job or Peter without asking God's permission. Or as Luther said, Satan is God's devil. We give Satan too much credit. He's not sovereign. He's not in control. What was the, the great lesson learned by Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4? No one can restrain God's hand or say to him, what have you done? That was the most powerful man on earth at that time. And he said, no one can restrain his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And from generation to generation, he's sovereign. He's in control. 
And in light of this sovereignty, he works all things for your good. What an amazing truth. Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Oh, there's this great doctrine of human divine concurrence. Though man acts wickedly and makes wicked decisions, God is orchestrating all for the good of his kingdom, for the advancement of his kingdom and the good of his people. Yes, but there's wicked rulers and they seem to have a lot of control. God is orchestrating that in time to advance his kingdom and for your good. Do you believe that? Joseph believed that. And so he wasn't angry with his brothers. He said, you were wicked. But what you meant for evil, God meant for good to save many people. That is human, divine concurrence. But my situation is so bad and it's so dark. How can God possibly be working in my situation? Dear friends, think of Christ. Christ dying on the cross was the most unjust thing that has ever happened in the world. A man who never sinned dying the death of a criminal. And all the while, while this is happening, happening, this is happening to bring about the greatest thing that has ever happened, our salvation. What a sovereign God. The Romans were nasty. They were evil. The Jews were, were evil. They, they crucified Christ and they were acting according to their own evil wills. But God was in such control that he's using all of these things to bring about our salvation. What a sovereign God. And you just see this all throughout biblical history and you can see it in your own lives. But dear friends, if, if, if God is sovereign in this way and he is in total control and he loves us and he cares for us and he promises that all is working together for our good, then why do we lose peace? Why are we anxious? Why are we fearful and afraid? Albert Barnes said the Christian committing his way to God and feeling that he will order all things aright has a peace which is nowhere else known. Nothing else will furnish it but religion. You can experience a peace nowhere else known. Oh, once again, that, that, that same hymn from Newton, Be Gone Unbelief. What does he say? Since all that I meet shall work for my good, the bitter is sweet, the medicine food. Though painful at present will cease before long, and then, oh, how pleasant the conqueror's songs. Dear friends, when you truly believe that all that you meet shall work for your good, the bitter becomes sweet. There is not a bitter circumstance in your life that would not become sweet if you are in Christ. Because he promises that it will work for your good and he is a God who does not break promises. Number four, repent of sin. Dear friends, if you are living in sin, you will never have 
peace. And thank God for that. Living in sin peacefully is a dangerous state to be in. But if you are a believer, God has a hold of you and he will not let you go. He will chastise you and he will discipline you. So if you are living in sin, know that you will not have peace. Number five, live with a clear conscience. Nothing will disturb your peace like a guilty conscience. Some of you in here this very day don't have peace because there is something you know that you need to confess or repent of. And it's driving you crazy inside. You can't have peace until you do so. At one point in time in my life, I remember there was something that I know that I needed to confess and I didn't confess it for 10 whole years and it, and it never stopped disturbing me that entire time. And then after doing it, what peace? And I can remember thinking to myself, what, what folly to go on for 10 years with, a, with a, a heavy conscience because of your pride, not wanting to admit something. But dear friends, a clean, clear conscience will give you peace. Number six, keep your eyes upon Christ instead of your circumstances. We have this great example of Peter. The disciples saw Christ walking on the water and they were afraid because they thought it was a spirit. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Dr. Lloyd-Jones points out, that nothing changed in the physical circumstances of the storm between the time that Peter stepped out of the boat and the time that he started to sink. What was it that changed? He was no longer looking to Christ, believing what Christ said, but he started to focus on the wind and the waves, that it was boisterous, that there was a storm around him. He took his eyes off of Christ and started focusing on the circumstance and began to sink. Your friends, that describes some of us, doesn't it? Instead of keeping our eyes upon Christ, we take them off of him and we start looking at and become, and become overwhelmed and obsessed with our problems. But the storms of life. We, we spend more time worrying about things than we do looking to Christ in Scripture. Different stay in the word. You want less anxiety? More scripture, less news. MacArthur said, I can promise you, if you don't see the news for an entire week and just read your Bible all week, by the end of the week, you'd be thinking very differently. How true is this? We watch the news today and we say, the world is, is worse than it has ever been. No, we just pay attention to more than we've paid attention to before. There's always been bad stuff happening, but, but some of us just cloud our minds with this. And, and we wonder why we're anxious. 
We're more eager to, to watch the news and, and to see the next bad thing happening than we are to look to Scripture and look at the promises of God. Dear friends, we must find balance there. We must focus more upon Christ. We must be in the Word, looking to Christ and focus less on our situations and circumstances. And seventh and lastly here, we must pray. Prayer is the solution for much of our anxiety and lack of peace. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing, the apostle says. We should note that Paul wrote those words from prison. Imagine that. A person in prison, unjustly, writing to you not to be anxious. And I note this because as Paul tells us not to be anxious and gives us the solution, he is doing so in chains. In other words, he is not writing as one who has not experienced difficult situations that can easily lead to fear and worry. He doesn't know when he's going to lose his life for Christ and he says be anxious for nothing. Dear friends, if a man in prison just waiting to die knowing it's going to happen soon, can say those things. How much more should you and I? Paul goes on. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When Paul says be anxious for nothing but, it is as though he is saying instead of being anxious. Instead of being anxious, pray. The the solution Paul gives us is straightforward. We must take everything to God in prayer with hearts of thanksgiving. John Gill says saints should not be anxiously or in a distressing manner concerned for the things of this world, but be content whether they have less or more, nor be over much pressured with what befalls them, but should cast their care upon the Lord and carry every case to him, and pay attention to this, and leave it there. Carry it to him and leave it there. There's a hymn that says, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer, and, and oh, what peace we often forfeit. Why? Because we don't carry everything to God in prayer. Dear friends, do you have a lack of peace because you don't pray? If you are like me, you sometimes have thoughts or concerns that cause anxiety for days or even weeks before you realize, I haven't actually prayed about this yet. And then you take it to God in prayer. And you're thankful to Him for for whatever He is doing at that moment. And the anxiety goes away. 
Notice also that Paul says, with thanksgiving. This is important. If you're not thankful for what God is doing, you won't have peace, even in your prayers. Because if you're not thankful, you, you always think that, that you are somehow a victim. You're a victim of people. You're a victim of circumstances. No, nothing is fair. That, that is the attitude of an unthankful person. But you can have peace when you say, Lord, I thank you for what you are doing. For you are good and you are sovereign and you care for me. Matthew Henry puts it this way. We must join thanksgiving with our prayers and supplications. I love this. We must not only seek supplies of good, but own receipts of mercy. Dear friends, do you have receipts of mercy? Some of you probably have hundreds of receipts because you don't throw them away. But do you keep receipts of mercy? Remembrances of what God has done for you. You see, when we combine prayer with a heart of thanksgiving, what is the result? Paul says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It is divine. It, it surpasses understanding, and it will guard our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. The word guard there is a military term. To, to speak of, of a group of soldiers, a garrison of soldiers standing guard. That is the term that is being used. When you pray with thanksgiving, the peace of God guards your heart and mind from anxiety like soldiers standing guard. That is an amazing thing to think of. That God's peace stands guard over your mind, over your heart. And when we have this true peace, nothing can disturb it. Nothing can take it away. And I leave you with these words from the Puritan Thomas Watson. He says, If God be our God, He will give us peace in trouble. When there is a storm without, He will make peace within. The world can create trouble and peace. But God can create peace and trouble. Let us pray. Oh, dear God, we thank you that you are our peace. Lord, that you not only command us to have peace and to not be anxious, but you give us the very peace you tell us to have. Oh, Father, guard our hearts and our minds from the cares of this world, from stress, from anxiety, from fear. Dear Lord, help us to trust that your plans are good, that even when things seem dark in our state and in our nation, you are sovereign. You are, in, you are in control. Father, your, your kingdom will not fail. This we know. 
the gospel is powerful. It shall prevail. And that we can have peace knowing these things. Help us to trust you. Help us to have faith and and confidence in all that you are doing in our lives, in our state, and in our nation, and and even in the world. Help us to know that your plans are good. Father, we ask that you would help us. That the Holy Spirit would help us and lead us and guide us in these things. And Father, we do thank you that that the, the Comforter who was promised to the disciples is now here with us. Father, give us peace knowing these things. Father, help those who have been living in fear and anxiety to know that that this is not what they are called to as Christians, but that there is so much more to the Christian life than living in fear. And help them to look to you. To to bring their request to you with prayer and with thanksgiving. And dear God, grant each and every person here the peace that surpasses all understanding. In your son's name we pray. Amen.